Well, hey, everybody, thanks for joining us here at Grace Church. My name is Bob Bryce. I'm one of the pastors here. And I wanted to just kind of start off my message today with telling you a little story about how my family and I moved uh, up to the Twin Cities several years ago from this small city called Pella, Iowa. And now you may have heard of it because of things like tulip time, where they have literally hundreds of thousands of tulips, uh, or maybe from the window company, Pella Windows. You'd be the best. Pella is actually so nice that we've lived there twice. And it's a town of about, let's say, 10,000 people, give or take. But the interesting thing that I think stands out in a town of 10,000 is that there are 26 churches, most of which that are well attended. And the church that my family and I were part of had over 4,000 people uh, on a weekend. So Pella at least statistically speaking, is one of the highest concentrations of people per capita who identify themselves as Christians. So you definitely could say it's a religious town. Now, I remember when we lived there the first time back in the day when Walmart first opened. And they were open on Sunday. It was a big deal. There were church people in the Walmart parking lot on Sunday mornings writing down the license plate numbers of the cars that were there. Well, anyway, one Sunday afternoon, my family and I were driving home during one of the hottest days of the hottest few weeks on record. It had been well over 100 degrees, sometimes over 110 degrees for two weeks straight. And this day was high humidity, just the worst. And as we were about ready to pass right by Walmart, we see a guy standing on the side of the road with, with a little cardboard sign that you can just kind of faintly read that says help. Now in the Twin Cities, this might not seem like a very strange occurrence, but in Pella, Iowa, this is something that it just doesn't happen. And, and, and car after car passed by without even stopping or slowing down. Some even honked their horns. And I wish that I could tell you that my first reaction when I saw this man on the side of the road was to pull over immediately and talk to him and, and ask him, what's going on? And, and how can I be of help? But I, just like car after car before me, well, at least I, I kind of moved over a little bit to at least give him some space so that I could just pass right on by. Didn't really even give it much of a thought, honestly. Now, I realize that the exact circumstances I just described to you might be unique to me, but I'm guessing you can relate to this story. Because I think we all have situations that are kind of like this. So what, what's a situation in your life where you could have intervened to help someone, but instead you, you just sort of moved over and passed them by? Maybe you didn't give it much thought either, because sometimes it's just like an automatic reaction. Isn't it interesting how it's easy to see somebody and yet at the same time not see them at all? Well, today as we continue in our Freed to Be series on the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5, we're going to be walking through one of the most familiar and famous passages in the entire Bible, and it talks about all this directly. But before we get started, let me just pray for us. 
Lord, we thank you for gathering us together in whatever way you see fit. We thank you that that you do not depend on a location, Lord, but you, by the power of your spirit, can bring the church together wherever we are. And so, Lord, I just ask that you teach us something that you just want to say to us, each of us, right now in these moments that we have together. May you fill us with your Holy Spirit. May we come to know who you are and follow in your ways now more than ever before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, today we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be looking in chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, and specifically we're going to be looking at this little chunk in verses 25 to 37. And uh, as part of our Fruits of the Spirit or Fruit of the Spirit series, we're going to be looking at two of these characteristics that Paul calls Fruit of the Spirit. Today we're going to look at kindness and goodness. It's kind of a two for one because these two things are so very closely tied to one another. But in order for us to really understand these at a deeper level, to understand how these fit together, I want to... I want to start by us understanding a bit more about these actual words themselves because they're significant and and Paul chose them very carefully. Kindness comes from the Greek word that means to serve others practically. In other words, to serve others in a way that meets their actual needs, not the needs that we wish that they had or, or the needs that we think are easy to fulfill, but These are needs that they actually have, which can be very inconvenient. Kindness, in this case, is serving others in a way that actually makes us vulnerable because it costs us something. It's not easy. Goodness, in this particular case, this comes from a Greek word that is actually really unique because it's only used four times in the entire New Testament. So it's not a common word, nor is there a record of it used in other non-biblical writings. And so it's kind of special and reserved. And in that sense, it's reserved to God. It describes an intrinsic quality or, or a characteristic of God that is then reflected in believers and followers of Jesus. In other words, it's not something that we can produce by our own efforts, but it's an expression of God who is already good, which also means that goodness in this way is incredibly consistent because God's goodness is the same in every single situation. His goodness does not waver based on the context or on the circumstances. And so because this is important, I want to kind of drive this home a little bit more so we remember kindness is serving others to meet their actual needs. And goodness is a quality of God that is consistent across all situations and contexts. And so maybe an easier way to see how these fit together might be to to say God's goodness is expressed through consistent kindness. God's goodness is expressed through consistent kindness. And one key thing to remember here is that God alone is good. It's easy to forget that part and get that twisted. But God alone is good, and it's from his good nature 
that true kindness is expressed through us. Like I said, we often get this turned upside down, and especially when we start to think, well, if I was just more kind, then I would be a good person. But nope. God's goodness is what makes us kind. It's not our attempts to be kind that make us good. Think about that. It's exactly this kind of thing, this temptation we have to flip it all upside down that leads us to easily misunderstand or miss entirely what is going on in what we're going to talk about today. This, this famous parable of Jesus that we know as the Good Samaritan. The story is so familiar that almost everybody knows it, believers and non-believers alike, it doesn't matter. It's in culture everywhere. But if we're not careful, and if we don't ask for the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth that is really contained in this, then we will undoubtedly end up oversimplifying it and miss, at least risk miss, Jesus' entire point in telling it. Now, I'm going to start out just so that we can get on the same page here. I'm going to start out by reading just the, the parable portion, the really familiar portion that starts in verse 30. And then we'll, we'll go back and we'll start looking at some of the surrounding details that will help us basically understand this at a deeper and more spiritual level. So starting in verse 30. Jesus says this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Now, like I said, that's the part that we seem to know pretty well. And when we just focus on that little part of the story without seeing how that story fits into the overall bigger context of what's going on, then we tend to simplify it and start thinking of it like we might think of a nursery rhyme, for example. All right, person number one blew it, person number two blew it, person number three got it just right. Be like person number three. But this is not Goldilocks, nor is it Mother Goose or Aesop's Fables or anything like that where the point is just to kind of teach a little uh, lesson about good morals. But that's what we often think it is. We often think that this story is just giving us a roadmap on how to become a good person. But interestingly, this is the exact kind of thinking that Jesus completely blows apart in this encounter. Verse 25 tells us how this all got started. And so look at this. We're going to start just in, in, in verse 25 and go, this, go through this a little bit at a time. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit 
eternal life. And so here's a guy who has a question for Jesus. You know, a lot of times when people try to test Jesus, it's very contentious and it's very, you know, uh, troublesome. But in this case, it seems like the guy just has a question. And, and, and this is an important question. Matter of fact, it's really the question of all questions, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, what does it take to be able to live forever? Now, this is a guy who is an expert in the law of God or God's word. It's so much like you and I might think of, of a lawyer today as being an expert in the law of the land. This particular person is able to know and interpret the law of God or the words of God that are contained in what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And so naturally he asks Jesus a very legal question. What must I do to inherit eternal life. In other words, how do I make sure I'm good enough to earn this reward from God? How can I prove myself? Now, I think this is a really fair question, actually. We, we shouldn't be quick to condemn this guy for asking such a question because whether we want to admit it or not, we ask the same kinds of questions ourselves, don't we? How do I know what God really thinks of me? How do I know that I'm, I'm saved or, or loved by God? Maybe I need to read my Bible more. Maybe I need to serve in my community more. Maybe I need to go to church more. Even though all these are great things to do, and there certainly is merit in them, are they enough to earn eternal life? That's really the nature of this guy's question. He's trying to figure out Am I good or not? And Jesus responds with a question of his own. Look at verse 26. What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it or how do you interpret it? And the fact that Jesus asked this question is just amazing to me because Jesus could have shut this whole thing down right there on the spot. He could have gone for the jugular, but he doesn't. Matter of fact, he uses this entire interaction as a way to try to evangelize this person, to set this guy straight. He, he meets him right where he's at and talks to him in the terms that this man would understand. This is what we should do when we evangelize people. So knowing that this guy is an expert in God's law, Jesus wants to know if the guy can answer his own question. And the guy has a great answer. Look at verse 27. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Bingo. Ding, 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 ding. Nailed it. He combines the two cascading commands that we find in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and he, and he puts them together just like Jesus has done before and he gives the best legal answer that summarizes the entire law of God in just these two things. Love God and love people. So look at how Jesus responds in verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. This is where things start to get a little bit interesting. The guy asked for a, basically a legal opinion or a ruling, Jesus gives it to him. 
go and do this and you will live. But notice Jesus, Jesus doesn't tell him, well, you know the right answer. You said the right thing, so you win. No, he says, it doesn't really matter that you know the right answer if you're not willing to do it. So Jesus says, do it and you'll win. And this is where we start to get a little bit more uncomfortable because it's, it's certainly one thing to say, love the Lord your God with everything you are and all that you have. And love your neighbor as yourself. But if we really ask ourselves, how are we actually doing at it? We can know the right answer to the question all we want. But the law of God demands that we follow it. Follow it with absolute perfection. We are to love God, not just a little bit, but perfectly and do it 100% of the time. And we're to love our neighbor as ourselves perfectly. No mistakes, 100% of the time. No vacation days, no oops, I did it again, or oops, I didn't do it again. And there are harsh consequences for not doing the law perfectly. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, all who rely on the works of the law are cursed because it's written that cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Sounds completely hopeless. And suddenly it even sounds dangerous because if we, if we want to live by the law of God as a way to try to earn eternal life and prove how good we are, then we will die by the law if we don't keep God's commands absolutely perfectly. So a quick show of hands here. Who's perfect? Don't even think about raising your hand, all right? All of us fall short in some way or another. We are not able to keep the law perfectly. We are not able to make ourselves good through our own efforts. And even this guy talking to Jesus is concerned about exactly that. So he tries to run a little damage control here. It says he wanted to justify himself. Again, that's a very legal term. He wanted to basically be declared right. So he asked Jesus this famous question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? In other words, he's asking now, Jesus, by neighbor, what exactly do you mean? You can't possibly mean like everybody, right? You, you, mean, you mean just the people that are like me, you know, look like me, think like me, believe like me, say the same kinds of things I say, like the same things I like, follow the same people that I do on social media, agree with my political views, the, the people that I already find easy to love, those are the people that you mean by neighbor, right, Jesus? Because I'm already doing that. Great news. I, I'm all good, right? That is when Jesus tells this guy this parable and shatters his whole world. And honestly, it should shatter our world too, for that matter. And so Jesus says, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They beat him and stripped him, tore off all of his clothes, and they left this man half dead. Now, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho uh, is not something we probably know about, but it, it's kind of a big deal because it's kind of a treacherous route. It's 17 miles long, and it's a huge change in elevation to go from way up where Jerusalem is to way down where Jericho is. It's over 3,000 feet in elevation change. And the trail is narrow, and it's a difficult journey, and it was the perfect place for robbers or bandits to hide out and just prey on whoever is weak and vulnerable. So a man was attacked and he was beaten to the point where he was very likely within an inch of his life. He surely would have died without help. Left for dead on the side of the road, he was in bad, bad shape. But good news, here comes a priest. A priest is the top tier religious person. And he would surely know the commands of God well enough to know that in order to love God perfectly, he must love his neighbors perfectly. So he stopped and helped this guy, right? Well, then here comes a Levite. Now this guy also knows the word of God, God's law better than most because he serves in the temple. He's also very religious. So, of course, he stopped to help this guy, right? Now, at this point in the story, the people listening to all this would have been expecting a third person to come along. They would have been expecting a hero in this story. They would be expecting that hero to be an everyday, regular, ordinary Jewish person. Because that's how these parables were traditionally structured in this culture. But Jesus throws a stick of dynamite in the whole thing. And he says, look at this. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Okay, no, 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 no. That's not the way this is supposed to go now. You see, Samaritans were despised by Jewish people and vice versa. They hated each other, not just a little bit, but like to the point where if a Jewish person needed to go somewhere that was north of Samaria, uh, they would go around Samaria and not through Samaria because they didn't want anything to do with it. They thought Samaritans were like some kind of half breed uh, because the northern tribes of Israel that were conquered by the Assyrians had intermarried with uh, these Jews who were in that area. And, and so they were sort of considered to be less than the Jews who were from the southern kingdom. And, and the fact in this parable that the Samaritan is the one that helped this guy would have not only been sh absolutely shocking for these people to hear, but would have caused absolute outrage at the suggestion, anyone, anyone but a Samaritan. But then it gets worse. The Samaritan lavishes love and care upon this person and kindness. Look at uh, verse 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him. 
he said. And when I come back, I will pay you for any extra expense that you have. So this Samaritan not only cared for this guy, but like I said, he lavished kindness upon him to, to the point where this guy likely tore his own clothes in order to make bandages for this man's wounds. He, he brought him to an inn and, and he not only just dropped him off there, but he stayed and cared with him throughout the night. And then when he did leave the next day, he left an open tab with the innkeeper so that this guy could stay there for as long as was needed to recover and do it safely and in a place where he had a place to stay and be protected. And so when we think about all this, we think, wow, that, that sounds really generous and, and crazy and, and you know, good for him. But we often don't think about the fact that isn't this what we would do for ourselves in this situation? Don't we take care of ourselves really well? Don't we search out and find the best doctors and the best care almost at any cost so we can go get our needs met and our problems taken care of? That's how we love ourselves. But is that how we love others? Is that how we love others who we don't like? Is that how we love others we don't agree with or, or who we may even consider to be our enemies? Is that how we love them? Now look at how Jesus wraps all this up in, in verse 36. I think this is just a fascinating uh, question here. He asked the guy, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? I think this is interesting because did you notice how Jesus uses this lawyer's own word, this idea of who is my neighbor? He uses this, that word to reverse the whole question. He doesn't answer the man's original question of, well, who is, who's really qualified to be my neighbor? I need to make sure I'm doing this right. Who is my neighbor? But instead, he flips it all upside down and asks, which of these three was qualified to be called a neighbor to the injured man? That's incredible. And of course, the expert in the law, the guy that's supposed to know the answers, he knows the answer. He says, well, the one who took pity on him, the one who had mercy on him. But interestingly, the expert in the law, the one who knew God's word better than probably most, still couldn't even bring himself to refer to the person in the story as a Samaritan. You notice he, he only called him the one who had mercy on him. So the irony here is that the title of this parable and the way that we're all familiar with it and, and the way that we refer to it is the good Samaritan. And yet the people who heard Jesus tell this story would never refer to a Samaritan as good or kind. But remember what we said back at the beginning, our definition of goodness is that goodness is the quality of God that is consistent in all situations. God is good in all situations. And remember what we said about kindness. Kindness is serving others practically, serving them to meet their actual needs. So 
part of the real meaning, the deeper meaning in this parable is not that it's just enough for us to know the word of God or know God's commands, because we can know all these things that God expects from us and we can still not do them, right? We can't ever do them perfectly. And as human beings, we are horribly inconsistent at this, aren't we? Because let's tell the truth. Even if we can say even one time that we really truly loved our neighbor as ourselves, it definitely isn't 100% of the time. And it definitely is not with 100% of the people that we see who are in need. And it's because we all fall short of God's perfection that we so desperately need his forgiveness and his mercy. We have to have his forgiveness and mercy. We cannot do this. And this is the point that Jesus was making. He wasn't giving a roadmap to how to earn yourself into being good and inheriting eternal life. There's another way, the way, who is Jesus. And when we go that way, he is who frees us to be good and kind by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it happens all through a relationship with Jesus who has laid down his very life so that we may live forever. We did not earn it and we do not deserve it, but yet he has given it to us to free us from ever thinking that we have to try to do this ourselves. Yes, of course, we all make mistakes in life. We are not perfect. But the biggest mistake we can ever make is to think that somehow we can do this without Jesus. That's always the temptation. Because remember, it's not enough for us just to know the word of God. We also, as we've been saying this entire series, we also must be filled with his spirit. And this point cannot be overemphasized. When we have a relationship with Jesus, that's when the Holy Spirit comes to live in us so that God's goodness is expressed through consistent kindness in us. God's goodness is, that's how it's expressed, through consistent kindness as he works through us. When this happens, we begin to see people like God sees them. And, and we, we begin to love people like God loves them. And so just when I was about to go around this man standing on the side of the road in Pella, my wife Tammy cried out, Bob! What are you doing? Stop the car so we can find out what is happening here. We need to figure out if we can help this man. He's probably overheated and dehydrated. I turned into the Walmart parking lot and Tammy went in and she got some bottles of water and some food. We went back out, we pulled over, we offered him something to drink and something to eat and asked him, hey, what's going on? Well, it turns out his car had overheated. He couldn't get it running again. He had called everyone that he knew, 
This was a Sunday afternoon. This was before Uber and all this kind of stuff. He was stuck out there and he had nobody to help him. And his main problem was that he needed to get back to Des Moines, which is about 45 minutes by car. He needed to get back to Des Moines to start his night job or he would lose it. And so I asked him, well, what would be most helpful to you right now? And he said, I, I really need a ride to Des Moines. So I said, well, hold on a second. I'll be right back. I went and I dropped my family off so that I had room for him in the car. And then I picked him up and drove him to Des Moines. Now, I'm not telling you this at all because I want you to celebrate me or cheer me on. Because remember, moments ago, I was ready to drive right by him until I heard my wife's voice telling me, stop. And so the question is, how many times do we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit telling us to stop and help somebody? And are we listening? But even more importantly, are we willing to do it? Are we willing to follow God into the places that he calls us and to do things that are uncomfortable and inconvenient? I had better things to do than drive to Des Moines. But guess what? Herb and I had a fascinating conversation on our drive, and I learned an awful lot. I asked him, well, how long were you out there? A little over two hours, he said. I had been slowly walking my way through town and on the way basically toward Des Moines. And I said, so, so that all would have started kind of right about the same time that the churches all get out, right? And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, well, a lot of traffic? Yeah, a lot of traffic. Did, did anyone stop and ask if you needed help? Well, he said a few people did stop. Some people stopped to, to tell him to get out of the way, that he couldn't be there. Some people uh, stopped to tell him that they, they wished that they could help him, but they just couldn't. Some people stopped and, and offered to pray for him from the car. And then as he's telling me all of this, he slowly reached down in his lap and he says, and then somebody stopped and gave me this Bible. And he showed it to me. And my heart just sank. Because in that moment, Herb needed a ride, not a Bible. Herb needed a ride, not someone to stop and pray for him. In one of the most religious towns, full of the most religious at least some of the most religious people anywhere in the world. Kindness was anything but consistent that day. And I was just as guilty as anyone. I remember praying, God, forgive me. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so I just ask right now for all of us that the Lord would teach us, you and me, teach us and, and give us eyes to see what he sees and ears to hear what he wants us to hear and hearts that love people like he loves them so that his goodness is expressed through consistent kindness. 
So that kindness is consistent, not because we're trying to earn it, but because God is consistently good and living in and working through us. And so you see, folks, it's not about us trying to earn our way into being a good person so that we can have eternal life. It's about being in a relationship with the one who is already good. Jesus already is good. And it's him, by the power of his spirit, that bears the fruit of kindness through us, through all of us who are willing to truly know him, be filled by his spirit, and then go forth and bear his fruit, bringing his goodness by being consistently kind. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, your mercy, and your loving kindness toward us. We are absolutely lost without you, Lord. And in a world that is so divided and feels like it's coming apart at the seams, Lord, would you give us the courage and the protection and the guidance to step out in faith and to follow you in ways that make us vulnerable, just like you were vulnerable, that serve others just like you came to serve and not to be served. Lord, would you just lift us up and guide us in ways that mold and shape us into being more like you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.